Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is American gun violence epidemic. Okay, hold on. So I'm Sarah Germain Lilly. And I'm Jen Cardenas. Jen, would you tell us this week about our focus? Our focus this week is on the Charleston Massacre, the racist attack on Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, on June 17, 2015. Nine adults died there, and three more survived the shooting. Jennifer Barry Halls, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the new book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, about the, about the massacre, will join us later on in the broadcasting to share the story. We'll also give you the latest in gun violence prevention news. It seems especially appropriate to begin this week's show with our In Memoriam, in which we remember those who lost their lives to gun violence. This week we share parts of the eulogy of the Honorable South Carolina Senator, Reverend Dr. Clementa Pinckney. This eulogy was given by our former president, Barack Obama. President Obama also honors others killed in the massacre. And a spoiler alert, I just had to include Amazing Grace at the end. What a good man. Sometimes I think that's the best thing to hope for when you're eulogized. After all the words and recitations and uh-huh. resumes are read, to just say somebody was a good man. Yeah. You don't have to be of high station to be a good man. Preacher by 13. Pastor by 18, public servant by 23. What a life Clementa Pigney lived. What an example he set. What a model for his faith. And then to lose him at 41, slain in his sanctuary, with eight wonderful members of his flock, each at different stages in life, but bound together by a common commitment to God. Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Tawanza Sanders, Daniel L. Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Myra Thompson. Good people. Decent people. God-fearing people. People so full of life, and so full of kindness 
people who ran the race, yes, who persevered, yes. people of great faith, amazing grace, amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that Clementa Pickney found that grace. Cynthia Hurd found that grace. Susie Jackson found that grace. Ethel Lance found that grace. The Payne Middleton doctor found that grace. Tywanza Sanders found that grace. Daniel L. Simmons Sr. found that grace. Sharonda Coleman Singleton found that grace. Myra Thompson found that grace. Through the example of their lives, they've now passed it on to us. May we find ourselves worthy of that precious and extraordinary gift. As long as our lives endure, may grace now lead them home. May God continue to shed his grace on the United States of America. Yeah, beautiful, right? Yep, miss that kind of president. Yeah, just imagine that at that moment, with so many grieving people right in the middle of Black Lives Matter, all of these deaths happening, especially to the black community, and this man is able to go in and eulogize these people and create a moment of unity for our country. <sighs> Takes something to do that. So we're going to move on now to um, the latest gun violence prevention news. Jennifer, take it away. So this week's gun violence news, as of July 1st, 2019, Proposition 63 in California goes into effect. In 2016, Governor Newsom, U.S. Senator Feinstein, and Robin Thomas, Executive Director of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, wrote the official argument in support of Proposition 63, found in the state's voter's guide. Their argument was as follows. Police in Dallas doing their job, a nightclub in Orlando, an office holiday party in San Bernardino, a church in Charleston, a movie theater in Aurora, an elementary school in Newtown. What's next? How many more people need to die from gun violence before we take bold action to save lives? More than 300 Americans are shot each day, more than 80 of them fatally. 
more than 1 million Americans were killed or ser seriously injured by guns from 2004 to 2014. Enough. It's time to take action to keep guns and ammo out of the wrong hands. It passed with a majority vote of 63%. The new law will require a show of identification and undergo a background check in order to purchase ammunition. There is also going to be a requirement of a four-year permit from the California Department of Justice in order to make the purchases. Connecticut, Illinois, Massachusetts, and New Jersey have enacted similar laws, according to the Hannah Sharon, litigation director of the Griffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. The family of 31-year-old victim Carrie Parson, who was killed in the Mandalay Bay shooting in 2017, that also took the lives of 57 others in Las Vegas, has filed a lawsuit against eight gun makers and three weapons dealers. It charges the gun makers marketed the ability of the AR-15 style weapons to be easily modified to mimic machine guns, which in turn violate both state and the federal ban on automatic weapons. Lastly, according to the Associate Press, today Richard Virginia lawmakers are set to assemble for what will likely be a contentious legislative session on gun laws. Governor Ralph Northam called a special session last month, shortly after a Virginia Beach City employee opened fire on his co-workers at a municipal building on May 31st. Northam, a Democratic faced with a gun-friendly Republican-controlled General Assembly in the middle of a legislative election year, is urging action on several gun control measures. He said lawmakers owe the victims of the gun violence, voters and laws, not thoughts and prayers. Police said Virginia Beach employee the, used two semi-automatic handguns, a silencer, and extended ammunition magazines to murder 12 people at the municipal building. He was then killed in a gun battle with police. Now, back to our weekly focus of the Charleston Massacre with our Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Jennifer Barry Haas. Her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, details the events and the lasting pain of these tragic killings for the survivors and for the community of Charleston. We are pleased to have Jennifer Barry Haas on the line with us now in the studio. Jennifer Barry Haas, we're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jen C. and I were so moved by your book. Can you tell us what was the process to make this book happen? And I appreciate that. Um, you know, I wish I could say it was my idea, but the reality is that I have been covering this for some time for the newspaper I work for, the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. And um, I had written a story about two or three months after the shooting about the survivors, and it was the first time they had spoken to the press, and um, so I got a phone call from a man that went something like this, I'm Albert Lee, I am an agent in New York, and I'd like to talk with you about a book. And I thought it was a scam, to be honest, so I just deleted it. Luckily, he called me back, and he said, no, I've been reading some of your stuff, and I think you should consider a book proposal. And it just happened that at that time, we were covering a lot of issues that went far beyond um, what people knew about the shooting and the narrative about forgiveness. Uh, there were questions about how the donations were being handled and how the survivors were being treated, and it did, in fact, sound like something that could be much more than what we were able to cover in the newspaper. And so from there we went forward, and I, for uh, two three years, 
covered the aftermath of the shooting both for the newspaper and uh, while working on the book. Yeah. So how were you able to get people to open up about their lives after this tragedy? Well, mostly it's just about building trust. I was, as I mentioned, reporting for our newspaper during this time. Uh, so the people involved, the family members and the survivors, saw my stories and they knew my approach. And I've been a journalist in Charleston for about 20 years now, so I knew some people who knew some of them and could vouch for me. They weren't already familiar with my work. Um, but also, unlike in breaking news stories, I had the luxury of time, so I could be patient. I worked on their timetables. I would wait for them to be ready to talk, which I think is really important when you're dealing with trauma survivors. You know, some days are better than others for them. Some days they don't want to talk to you, and that's okay. I wouldn't badger them. I would just reach out to someone else from, say, another victim's family, and very unfortunately, there were a lot of people suffering on any given day. So I had the ability to, as I said, be patient and try to build their trust. And do you still stay in touch with the families that you interviewed? Yeah, I do. And, um, you know, a lot of them live here in Charleston. Um, for instance, we held a book, uh, an event to launch our book here in Charleston, and um, Felicia Sanders, uh, one of the survivors, and her husband Tyrone came, and so did Melvin Graham, whose sister died in the shooting, and Nadine Collier, whose mother died in the shooting, and Nadine was the first person who spoke forgiveness at the shooter's bond hearing. Um, I speak with Sharon Risher and Anthony Thompson, two other family members, um, and I talk with Jennifer Pinckney, whose husband was Reverend Clemente Pinckney, uh, although she's not in Charleston, so I tend to reach out to her more when there's something going on. But, you know, I don't talk to them on as regular of a basis, but I try to keep in touch and maintain that, um, you know, maintain those relationships and know how they're doing and what's going on with them. You did a beautiful job of bringing us into their lives and bringing them into our lives and um, uh, conveying the amount of loss that they're going through in the day-to-day -day tragedy and the lasting pain of uh, the events. There's also such so much history here. Can you talk about the history of the church and how it played into the shooting? Sure, sure. So Emmanuel is a very historic church. It was um, it began back in the early 1800s when um, slavery still ruled Charleston. Charleston was really the epicenter of slavery in America. Uh, it was the port where about 40 percent of, of Africans who were enslaved arrived in America. Um, and so Emmanuel provided a spiritual sanctuary to its members in a day of unimaginable brutality um, and, and darkness and oppression, cruelty and all of that. So it's today the oldest AME church in the South, and it's really hard to overstate its importance as, um, as really a beacon of humanity and civil rights. Martin Luther King and Scredit, uh, Scott King both visited the church um, back in the 60s. Then Martin Vesey was an early leader of the church. Um, in 1822, he tried to launch a massive slave rebellion in Charleston. Unfortunately, it failed because the authorities detected it, and he and his co-conspirators were hanged 
but it was a hugely historic event. Um, and so the shooter in this um, in the Emanuel tragedy knew that committing this kind of violence in a house of worship, especially such an historic one, would generate um, enormous outrage and draw attention to white supremacy and particularly his notion that black people were overrunning white culture and trying to take over the country and those sorts of things. Um, he apparently, however, did not realize that it would instead bring people together uh, instead of driving them apart, which um, was what he wanted. He, he wanted to reinstitute segregation and that sort of thing. Uh, so he knew the importance of the church's history when he arrived there. You paint the courtroom scenes so beautifully. They're just chilling. Um, how did you capture or recreate what was said at the shooting and at the courtroom events later and all of these different um, events that you portray? Well, it was a combination of being there when I could be there, which obviously is a lot easier to write about because you can witness the events yourself um, and recreating events. I was obviously not at the shooting, so... Um, I spoke with Felicia and Polly, the two adults who were in the room who survived um, early on, just a couple months after the shooting, and then several times afterward. And I also had their trial testimonies and Polly's 911 call, plus information from police officers who stormed into the fellowship hall just moments after the shooter fled. Um, and I had spoken with Jennifer Pinkney. I heard her testimony and her 911 call, and spoke with people who were at the church. There was a quarterly conference right before this Bible study. I spoke to people who left right beforehand. And so it was really just amassing as many court records and eyewitness accounts and other accounts to recreate events like the shooting itself. Um, then it's just a matter of picking out those details that help bring that back to life. Now for the trial, I was one of the reporters who was in the courtroom for the trial. So that was much easier because I could witness virtually everything I wrote about, with the exception of a few things, such as when the family members gathered in a separate room um, away from the press. In that case, I was able to go down and see the room um, and then speak with people who were there. So I had to recreate that. But by and large, the courtroom... Uh, scenes I was there for, and that's much, much easier, as you can imagine, because you, when you recreate scenes, often, especially if there's a lot of people present, you'll find they remember things a little bit differently. It presents a challenge for a writer, because you obviously want to get it correct, um, but particularly when people are going through traumatic events, they, they sometimes um, they recall things, as I said, a little bit differently. So it was, it was really just a matter of gathering as much information and accounts as possible. So we are currently, as journalists, avoiding creating fame for shooters and spreading the racist and hate rhetoric. What do you think of this approach, and has your perspective changed since you wrote the book? It has. You know, after the shooting, my newspaper did not run the shooter's picture on the front page until after the funerals, and one of the reasons that we did that was for what you're, what you're mentioning is um, to not glorify him or his actions and not put them above, not put him above those who died and their loved ones and to not um, 
give some extra notoriety in that regard. But that said, I would say that to me, at this point in time, the issue is um, less about creating fame for the shooter and more about understanding the why piece. Why did the shooter do this? Um, we don't have to glorify him, but we do have to understand the why if we have any hope of preventing other um, similarly motivated potential shooters out there from acting. So sometimes you have a lack of mental health involvement in their lives. Uh, sometimes you have people who are ignoring red flags. And at other times, such as with the Emanuel and the, um, also the Tree of Life uh, shooters, ideologies motivate them. So in this case, um, it's that cult of violent white supremacy. We have to understand those motivations if we're going to deal with them. So ignoring the shooters in that case can risk missing that greater understanding, in my opinion. So how do we address white supremacy um, and shooters who are being radicalized right now if we aren't discussing racism and the racist websites like the one that the shooter here fed off of? I think we have to walk um, a fine line between not glorifying them, but also understanding why um, we, we can't ignore violent white supremacy. We can't ignore the fact that that's where he got his views, and that's what um, radicalized him. That's what motivated him. That's where he got his false beliefs. Um, and um, I, I think that if we completely ignore the shooters in our efforts to not glorify them, we can risk missing that important piece. So it's a fine line. Well, we are just about out of time, and we could talk about this for much longer, but I just want to encourage people to read your book, Grace Will Lead Us Home. It's available in bookstores. It's available on audiobooks. And I just want to close by saying that... Um, you write that you wrote this book to convey the sheer scope of devastation that mass tragedies show in the lives of everyday people. And I have honestly felt that, and I have felt myself a period of grieving going through after reading this book because it's so powerful. I think this is a message that everybody needs to hear. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. We look forward to... Uh, sharing that book with uh, readers everywhere. So, Jennifer, what's your reaction, Jen Cardenas, after, um, after reading the book? This book gave me a deeper understanding of how the victims and survivors are affected, not just from the shooting, but from the aftermath. Yeah. So, can you tell us now how we can get involved in gun violence prevention? Of course, come to a meeting. Here in New York, we meet every other Thursday at 7 p.m. in Manhattan at the LGBT Center on 13th Street. On our next meeting is July 18, where we will be planning all kinds of great actions and protests. So please join us. Everybody is welcome at any time and all gag events. Remember, all are welcome to come to gag meetings. Join us on 725 at the Slipper Room Benefit. Check out on Instagram more information. And also you can go to www.slipperroom.com. It is a retro-themed fundraiser with music, comedy, burlesque, and a common goal to bring down the NRA. You could also find us online. To find out more about working with us, please go to gaysagainstguns.net 
or follow us on Gays Against Guns NY on Facebook and Instagram or Gag No Guns on Twitter. Also be sure to check out our website to learn more about our gag chapters located nationwide like in LA, DC, Chicago, and San Francisco. Another great way to get involved is by becoming a BAI buddy. A BAI buddy is someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio station going by signing up to give a small donation every month. If everyone chips in a small amount, it helps keep the lights on here at WBAI and allows us to bring you this show every week. So just go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. And become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. I am a BAI buddy, and I am a BAI buddy because there is no radio station like WBAI. This is community radio. This is the grassroots. This is where you will hear the news you need, the actions that you need to take, and you can really get in touch with the community. So I encourage you to become a BAI buddy. So now it's time to finish the show with our hell yes. When we celebrate some of our favorite sheroes and heroes of the week, to Jennifer Barry Hawes for this amazing, profound book. Hell, Hell yeah. yeah! To the Democratic candidates in the debates making gun control a national question. Hell, Hell yeah. yeah! To all our gag volunteers for Pride, thank you for all you did to make our Pride events a great success. Whether you were an HB, a marshal, a videographer, photographer, you were amazing, inspiring, and fabulous. We brought the house down. Hell, Hell yeah! yeah. Well, we have one more thank you to Mary Ellen Novak for making all the connections and introducing us to this book, uh, Grace Will Lead Us Home, and for helping us with the arrangements to have Jennifer Barry Haas on the show today. Thanks for listening. We're back next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. You can listen to our previous shows anytime on the WBAI website. Go to Radio Gag, gazeagainstguns.net, or on podcast. That's Radio Gag. And we leave you, as always, with a song from our sister singing quartet, Sing Out Louise. <laughs>